0: You know, putting notes in it and just sort of working it through. And it's, it always feels sort of magical in the end. Yeah. Because, you know, I'll sit down and however many hours later, however many hours that took me, you know, I'll have something that didn't exist before. And it just always feels like, wow, that's, where did that come from? And even sometimes when I'm writing and it's just not coming together. And then that moment when it just all kind of clicks into place. It's
1: such a good feeling.
0: Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast
1: show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I'm so excited to get to talk with my friend Kirsten Powers. Kirsten is an American author, columnist, and political analyst. She currently writes for USA Today and is an on-air political analyst at CNN, where she appears regularly on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Tonight with Don Lemon, and the lead with Jake Tapper. But today, in addition to talking about Kirsten's success in the political world, which we do, we talk about how writing has helped her build that career. We also talk about what writing has been like as a personal practice for her. She talks about how writing has encouraged her to be more vulnerable and how she's realized that if she wants to be a good leader, she has to learn to be vulnerable. We talk about her podcast, which, by the way, is brilliant. It's called How to Do You, and it's one of my favorite podcasts out there right now. So if you haven't listened to it yet, Search that now, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and definitely give that a listen. But we talk about her writing life, how she gets writing done, even in the most stressful and chaotic of situations. We talk about what it's like to regret something that you published a long time ago. And one of my favorite quotes from Kirsten today is, I'm so afraid of this, that means I have to do it. So make sure you listen in, hear exactly what she's talking about and what this could mean for you. All right, I'm here today with Kirsten Powers. Thanks so much for joining me, Kirsten. So happy to be here. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a long time. So I'm so excited that we finally get to do this. There are a bunch of different things I want to cover, including your life as a writer and the new book you're working on. Lots of really fun stuff for us to cover. But I'll start with the same question I always start the show with, which is
0: what does it mean for you to find your voice? Well, it's actually been an incredibly meaningful thing to me it's funny i think it would surprise people because for people who who know me from my work right i'm a columnist right now well for the last many years for usa today but i've i've written for other people and and then a you know a political analyst where i'm often giving opinions and and speaking out and I, so i think people would a lot of people would probably say like well you have your voice like you're out there you're talking mm. but the truth is i guess i had it maybe in terms of my Public life, but i but that was a very I had a really bright line between public and private. Mm. If you were to go back three years ago, maybe and prior to that, I didn't really integrate me in into what I was doing. I was very much just Kirsten Powers, the political analyst saying you know looking at the issues and kind of analyzing them versus now I think that I have more found my voice in the sense that I you know have written I wrote a column about contemplating suicide for example you know talking about having depression mm-hmm. something I would never have done just a few years ago prior to that and I've integrated I wrote you know, during the whole me too time I I wrote about being sexually assaulted in high school, something that I had never discussed before. And so I think that that has been like a really big part of my healing journey mm. because I was always kind of trying to be what I thought the world wanted me to be, which what I thought for some reason, and I'm not sure what well, I do know where I got this. I got it from my parents. <laughs> um, but this idea that, like you know, you're not supposed to be emotional, you're supposed to be very analytical. My parents were professors you know, that I was too much, that I was, you know, needed to dial it down. I was too emotional. I was, too, you know, too many feelings, mm. too many opinions, all these things. And so I really, I think was always kind of in a fight with myself. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and I think the turning, one of the turning points for me was learning the Enneagram.
1: Oh, yes. Can we talk about the Enneagram for a second? Yeah. Talk about your
0: Enneagram number? Cause yeah. I,
1: you and I Absolutely. have had conversations about this and it comes up a lot on the show, I think, because a lot of people who I am connected with have learned as much as you and I have from the Enneagram. But tell me, tell me um like you know the 30-second intro to what the Enneagram is and then talk about your number.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to how to do that. But it's a it's a um it's a personality typing system that like there's nine, yeah, there's nine, right? Nine types. And so Uh, I had, well, I had really been resistant to it, actually. And I had originally thought I was a one. So, which is the perfectionist, because at that point Mm -hmm. in time, I was sort of behaving like a one. Sure. But what I realized later was I was listening to Ian Crone's podcast, Typology, and I realized he just kept saying over and over, you have to think about who you were up till the age of 25. So And he goes, and that's being generous. Like, really, it's probably who you were Mm. through college. And so the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I was not a one. There's no way. And uh, I was so rebellious and outspoken and really comfortable with that. And never even occurred to me to, like, contort myself to please other people. And so I... Got in touch with Ian because we had Don Miller's, you know, mutual friend, I think connected us. And we talked for like two hours and then he was like, have you ever considered that you might be – and I was like, if he says eight (laughs) –
1: do you know what's funny is I feel like you always end up being the number that you least want to be.
0: Yeah. That was the one I ruled out in the beginning. I was like, there's no way I'm an eight. Like, so I could just set that one aside because it wasn't It like, it was what I had been trying to not be my whole life. Sure. And so it's what I, you know, which is the challenger. And and also most of the eights that I knew, so he was like, but you're a subtype. So this gets a little more complicated. And he said, you're a subtype. I think it's the social eight. He said that doesn't really look like an eight. They're motivated by all the same things, but they don't really, they're not as aggressive and in your face. Like they're not fighters necessarily. Because all the eights I know are fighters. Fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Like they love to fight. They love to get in there. And I just that's not how I am at all. Like I really, really don't like fighting. Uh, and I really don't like conflict. I like peace. Like peace is very important to me. Though when I was a lot younger, I was more of a fighter. So I so that that's probably yeah. that's probably accurate. And so I think at first I was really depressed. I was really depressed for a couple of weeks. And then I just sort of came around and I was like, you know this is how God made me. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with it. And I kind of was like, I'm going to lean into it. And I'm just going to be me. And it just was so transformational for me to just be like, this is who I am. And, and that's what I think that's when I really started finding my voice in a way that was meaningful to me. Hmm.
1: It's so it's so powerful. I think the one of the things that made me think of was how We, if you think about yourself up to the age of about 21 or college age, and then post college, we do have a tendency to, to kind of tame our personality, Mm -hmm. to make us a little bit more palatable. I don't know. I just think it's really fascinating how, but how powerful it can be when we accept the truth of who we are and what we have to offer the world.
0: So I think what happened was I read Brene Brown. I mean, I had read other Brene Brown books, but there's the one she did on leadership. Mm, Yeah. And so I just realized like, if I'm going to be in a role, like I'm in, you know, the public role that I have, and I want to be a good leader, then I have to be vulnerable. And that that's what people need from me. And so once I felt like that's, what's going to help other people I just sort of had to make myself do it. And it was hard. I mean, it was really, really hard. And I had major vulnerability hangovers, and I still get them sometimes Mm -hmm. because I was also sort of, I think, had this feeling of, oh, I don't want to draw too much attention to myself. Or I don't, you know, I was always kind of behind, you know, I was always writing about other people or other things or analyzing other events or other people. And so I always felt like, I shouldn't bring myself into it. So, but then I realized, no, actually, that's what some people need from me. Everybody doesn't need that from me. Some people just want the other stuff. But that there are a lot of people. And so, in fact, the column that I wrote where I talked about contemplating suicide was right after I read that book. And it was when Anthony Bourdain had taken his life and Kate Spade. And I was talking to my, so my, fiance's brother is one of the leading, he's a therapist. He's one of the leading suicide, anti, what would you call it? Suicide prevention advocates. And so it was, so what had happened was Kate Spade had taken her life. And then I think I, this is right before, you know, Anthony Bourdain was a couple days later. So it was in between. And I said, my editor asked me to write a column on this, but what is there to say that hasn't already been said? Yeah. You know, and he said, well, he said, the thing that happens is the way the media covers suicides, understandably, is they just talk about the suicide. They talk about this famous person who had it all, um, who killed themselves. And so for people who are suicidal, or, you know, having suicidal ideation, they look at that, and they say, well, if they can't make it, how can I? Sure. And people end up, and then you start having a rash of Copycat suicides, basically. So he said, yeah. So he said, what people really need right now is to hear about people who contemplated suicide but didn't do it. Wow. And so I said, Well, that happened to me after my father died, because my father died suddenly of a heart attack when he was 61. So he said, Well, that would be really helpful if you shared that. And so You know, I just was like, I'm just going to do it. It's just something I wouldn't have done before. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to do it. And it just went, I mean, it went viral beyond viral. It was like, you know, well over a million page views. Like, you know, so many people emailing me that I know telling me how they suffer from depression or that they've been suicidal or other people coming out and talking about theirs because they read mine. I mean, it really was like meaningful. Yeah. Right. It was and which is really what I'm looking for is meaning. And so so I'm getting a benefit from it because it's meaningful to me and other people are getting a benefit from it because it's helping them. So I think that's how I got to the point of being able to do it. But it still makes me sometimes feel a little funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, you expressed to me even you, you have a new ish podcast out. It's been out for a couple of months now called How to Do You that I have to say is one of my favorite podcasts to listen Aww. to right now. And I remember when your first episode came out and I responded to you right away and just said that it was so great and I was really enjoying it. And you made a comment to me about how vulnerable it felt to you to put this out in the world because it was yeah. so personal and kind of different from the other public work that you do. It's clear, I guess, that it doesn't, it's not like it gets easy to keep being vulnerable. Mm. But no. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about like what inspired you to start the show and then what,
0: what keeps you coming back to it? when you feel that familiar pinch of vulnerability? I think the, what I was just saying, the fact that I've heard from so many people, you know, about how helpful, I mean, I've mean, i had many people that I don't know, obviously, you know, who who send me emails or post comments or, or whatever, communicate somehow. But I also have a lot of people I do know, I can't tell you how many friends, it's funny how it's always different episodes for them, mm-hmm. Have have called me or emailed me and told me that it like, brought up something that they hadn't dealt with yeah, and how they sat and like sobbed through the interview. Right. Yeah. And it's just, so the fact that I know that it's helping people, I also, you know, I've struggled a lot. And so I just always felt like once I get on the other side of this, like, I just, I have to find some way to redeem this. And the only way that I could redeem it is to help other people with all the knowledge that I gained. You know, I ha- I had health issues, I had chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and, you know, I had depression and anxiety and you know, I went through a really bad divorce and I've had mm. a bunch of deaths, you know, that really hit me. So it's like, I've, I feel like I've kind of felt almost all the things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I'm such a, you know, I treat everything journalistically. So I've read every book on every issue. I've done every alternative therapy. I've done every mainstream therapy. I've, so I feel like I'm always giving, I'm always sharing this with my friends, but I just feel like there's a broader audience that needs to have these kinds of conversations. But I think what was really vulnerable for me about it was a talking about my own experience, but B, this is really the only thing I can think of other than like writing my book, which I think we're going to talk about it, it that, and this is just me. Yeah. You know? So it's like, If it's horrible, if people hate it, if it's people think it's stupid, like that's on me. (laughs) Like, like there's no one else to point at. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I think that's one of the challenges when it
1: comes to talking about finding our voices or putting our voices in the world is that if you have the covering, I think of like getting a book contract, for example, Mm -hmm. when you get a book contract, there's some part of you that feels like, phew, thank God somebody else thinks I have a good idea, (laughs) which is like a little what a little like what you're talking about, where you feel like you have the covering of this bigger brand that's telling you that your voice is you know that you've got you've got something to say, and it's helpful in some ways and it's also you know when you think about it, having that covering of the brand is also limiting in some ways because there are certain things you can say or not say depending on who your publisher is that you're signed with, and I'm sure you feel similarly with c n n it's not like you can go on camera and say whatever you want to say, whereas when you have your own thing you created. It's both that now you have total freedom and also the terror of having total
0: freedom. Yeah. So So, yeah, that was, that was scary. And then also just, you know, all the stuff that comes when you do something new, like, who do you think you are? Like, why should you be doing this? You should just be analyzing politics, you know, leave this, Mm -hmm. leave this to the people who know how to do this kind of stuff. This isn't what people want from you. People want your news analysis, all those things, you know, that, yeah. So, sort time of at you and having to push through that and just be like, this is what I want to do. And it's very fulfilling to me and I really enjoy it.
1: Hmm. You talked about how you'll get messages from people saying that they heard an episode that really impacted them or they sobbed through the whole episode. One episode that I listened to recently that I loved so much, and I'll say this because I want our listeners all to go find the episode and listen to it, but it's an interview with David Kessler, I think. Is yeah. that right? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Who's a grief expert specialist. And he talks about grief in general but then and and how to you know what it's like to navigate the process of grief but also about the collective grief that we're all experiencing during this strange time the present day covid-19 pandemic that we're all walking through and i had a really similar experience to what you're talking about listening to that episode where i think i've been kind of like so many people wanting to like stay positive that there are good things that can come out of this and you know, kind of keep my thoughts in a good place and not watch too much news. And, and when I started to hear him talk about grief in this time in particular, I realized that there's this heaviness I've been feeling the whole time. That's grief. It's collective grief for the loss of the life that we were all living and the loss of lives across the world. And, and so many other things that it was almost like this release for me to finally be able to feel the grief that I had already been feeling and carrying and was really powerful for me. So I'll just add my name to the list of people. Oh, I'm really so
0: glad. Yeah. And well, and, and grief is something also that I think, well, I've had a lot of experience with. And so, you know, if you don't know that you're grieving, it can be really scary mm. because you're like, what is happening? I'm fine. One minute, the next minute I'm sobbing next minute I'm like, nothing's happening. The next minute I'm anxious because that's grief. It's like a roller coaster and it's not a straight line. And so I think it's really important for people to be able to name that that's what's happening because it makes it easier to handle when you know, also it's, they're waves and you're just going to ride them. And it's, you're not the way you're feeling in that minute. That moment is, is not going to last. You're going to, you're going to ride that wave onto something else and kind of get to a, a better place and then over time you'll feel better. This situation's a little harder because we don't really know when it's going to end. Sure. Right. So, I think that that also makes it really complicated. It's this just sort of feeling of, you know, will we ever go back to the way it used to be?
1: Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your life as a writer. So, before you and I hit record on this episode, you had asked me not to talk about your book that you released in 2015 called The Silencing. And you said the reason was because there's just a lot of stuff in there that you don't agree with anymore. And then I was like, ooh, 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 can we talk, can we talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> not to push you, but yeah. I think it's really important for writers to hear this because I have had a similar experience, and I know so many other writers have too, where you publish something and put it into the world. And with social media or with self-publishing, it's not... It's not as permanent as it is when you publish something with a publisher. And in your case, your book at the New York Times list, talk to me about that, about publishing something and and then later going like, gosh, I wish I could kind of reel that back in and have never said that before.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any way to avoid it probably, right? I mean, sure. I think it's probably part of the nature of, of the beast unless you're doing things I'm trying to think of other kinds of maybe writing novels or something, but even then I'm sure people look back and think like, Oh, I'm such a better writer now. I could have done, you know, I could have done this differently or I shouldn't have written it that way. For me, it's that I'm such a different person now Mm -hmm. than I was when I wrote that. And it's interesting. You can actually see, I was a pretty unhealthy eight. So, you know, it's very combative right? Yeah. It's, a, you know, it's a book about free speech. And it's, you know, the silencing. And it's very, like, you know, it's very propulsive, the way it's written. And it's, you know, I don't think it's like angry, necessarily. It's, you know, it's analytical, but it is also accusatory. You know, sure. And it's not to say that there aren't some, you know, I don't disagree with everything in it. Or I think there, I, I think free speech is important. I think that, you know the cases, a lot of the cases that I, I use as examples of you know people really inhibiting people's ability to express themselves. well, it's kind of funny, even though I'm talking about it, it's it, I guess maybe psychologically maybe that was like something I was struggling with, right? because mm. i I wasn't at a point yet where I nobody was actually stopping me but maybe I felt like they were, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's just something that when people bring it up to me now, I'm like, you know, I just don't even really, it's just not where my head is. Sure. I just don't think about things that way anymore. And I don't, and I think I was, I was kind of dismissive of some of the complaints of the people who were, you know, trying to stop people from expressing themselves. Sure. So people who felt, you know, felt like, they were being victimized by the people who were saying these things that were offensive to them. And I was much more in this space of like, who cares? You know, like, why do you care? Why do you care what those other people yeah. said? Like, I wasn't, very, right. em- I mean, I wasn't yeah. very empathetic, you know, and I think, again, that's like very unhealthy ape behavior. Yeah. And eights when they're unhealthy also get become very black and white, good, bad. And that's, it's, that's what that book is. You know, it, it is hmm. like there's good guys and there's bad guys, you know, and it's the good guys are the people who are standing up for free speech and the bad guys are the ones who are trying to stop free speech. But it's actually much more uh, nuanced than that. And so, yeah, so I don't, I just don't really, and I haven't gone back and read it or anything. So I don't know, you know, actually don't know what I would feel about it. I mean, if I ever have some free time, maybe I'll do that.
1: I'm scared to go back and read my book. <laughs> well, so why do you feel that way?
0: <laughs> Your first book,
1: yeah. I think. Well, one thing that's interesting to me is how you can see the evolution and progression of yourself through time when you have the writing is like a time capsule. You know, it would be this way if you were just going back to read through an old journal entry, too. But for those of us who are putting our words into the world and making them more public, not only are we going back to read an old journal entry, but we're also Also, so are a few thousand other people, depending (laughs) on how many people it's exposed. I remember so badly wanting that book to hit the New York Times list. And now I'm just like, thank God that book never hit the New York Times (laughs) (laughs) list.
0: That's so funny.
1: You know, I mean, it is what it is. Just like you said, it's I think one thing it could teach me if I were willing to go back and read the book is how to have compassion for that younger version of myself and where Mm -hmm. I was at that point, because it was where I was then. And it's not where I am now. And it shows an evolution of character. Hopefully that would be the hope over time. But yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit like nails on chalkboard to think about myself saying some of the things that I said and with such certainty and lack of humility. That's
0: That's how I was. That's really, I thought I had all the
1: answers to all of life's questions.
0: And yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and I always feel like God is so merciful that blogs did not exist when I was in my 20s. (laughs) Oh my gosh, uh, I would be unemployable. I feel that way I mean, about social really, media that it didn't happen yeah, in my 20s. Yeah. I would be unemployable. <laughs> I just, I can't even imagine what I would have done and what oh I would have said. Oh my gosh. So it's just, yeah. And so it does give me a lot of compassion and empathy for people when when there are these little, you know, blow ups where somebody says something on Twitter, they shouldn't have said who's in their 20s or something. It's like, just come on. You know, we all we all would have done it if we could have. You know, it's like we just didn't because the technology didn't exist. It's true.
1: It's true. So that feels like a great transition into this question about writing, which is how has writing helped you to build your career over time?
0: Hmm. Well, it's It's funny, I actually wanted, so I was a journalism major. And then by the time I graduated, I didn't want to be a journalist, I decided I wanted to work in politics. And so I ended up kind of going that route. And I worked in the Clinton administration as a political appointee. And then I worked in New York City and state politics and did some work for the Democratic Party there and stuff like that. And then I, but I had, you know, when I when I was working in the Clinton administration, I remember talking to some of my journalist friends because I was a press secretary. So I, you know, was always working with journalists. And I was like, Oh, I wish that I would have kind of wish I would have pursued that, you know, I really like to write. Mm -hmm. And, but back then, in order to do that, I would have had to move to like, some little town in Florida and like covered crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there really was no, there was no internet at that point. And there was no, so there was no blogging. There was no like 20 somethings getting hired to like write for Politico because Politico didn't exist. Like you either wrote for the Washington Post or the New York times or USA today, Yeah, you know, or, or a magazine, but it's like, you didn't, I mean, there was, it really was such a different world. And so you didn't just show up after having not done the sort of, you know, done your time, basically, and be like, oh, I'm just going to be a, you know, I'm just going to be an opinion writer, you know, for a newspaper. So it just sort of seemed like one of those things that I wasn't ever going to be able to do. And then when I was working in politics, a friend of mine said, she like asked me to lunch and she said, I think you should be on TV like talking about politics. And I was like, that's insane. And, <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm going to give your name out to some people. And, you know, because she's like, we need more like democratic women. Because back then there was it wasn't the way it is now. Now it's like the pundit industrial complex, right? It's like, there there's some, some people doing it, but it wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah. And so I ended up you know, say they, I started getting calls and I was saying no. And then I finally was like, you know, I'm so afraid of this. I have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, I'll just do it one time. And so I did it and I was like, Oh, that was not hard at all. And so I started doing TV and I just started getting called by everybody. And so then I was like, Oh, well maybe I actually can do this. So the funny thing is I really wanted to write. I didn't really want to be on TV. Yeah. But like TV was my way in, like to opinion journalism. And, and now, so, is
1: there one that you enjoy more than the other?
0: Yeah, I like writing much more. Oh, wow. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. And so being on TV kind of then made me like somebody who could have opinions. Right. Sure. I mean, it was like, so it was like I, so then I just started writing op eds. And just sending them to everybody, and they all kept getting published. And then I was living in New York at the time, and then the New York Post. I had published a couple in the New York Post, and they. I, I think what happened was that they thought Hillary was going to win the primary, and then Obama kind of, you know, it, it turned it into a race, and so they didn't have anybody to write about the Democratic primary. Got it. So they called me up, and they're like, "Would you be willing to write a column like twice a week covering the Democratic primary?" And I was like. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so that was my first column which was terrifying because in New York everybody reads the New York Post. Yeah, everybody. Like I know people outside of New York might be like, oh that's a Murdoch conservative thing at what I mean the editorial pages, but like everybody reads it. So I like my columns talk about vulnerability. It was horrible. Horrible. I cannot even describe nah. it. Where I just would be, you know, I was, like, learning to write a column, like, in front of, like, <laughs> New York City. Yes. And then I started to get, then I started just getting more feedback from sort of people in my world, you know, and then Tina Brown, who at the time, I don't know where was Tina Brown, I don't even know what she was doing, but I guess she'd she started uh became the editor of the Daily Beast, she was on Morning Joe and she like brought up one of my columns and both of them were like, oh, she's such a great columnist and she's so good and whatever. And so that's, I ended up emailing her to thank her. And then that's how I ended up at the Daily Beast. Wow, that's But yeah, it was really horrible. I mean, I can remember just being just a basket of nerves and almost gave up so many times. I mean, it just was, it just was so hard and i was writing twice a week and so it was like a column twice a week is no joke it's a, yeah you're on the hamster wheel of content production yeah, for sure yeah yeah and so i was you know and i'm sure there's tons of columns that i wrote that i would die if i saw them yeah now. yeah you know
1: okay kirsten one question i have for you because you've done so much writing in your life is about your writing process can you talk to me a little bit about what that looks like for you
0: yeah, so it's different for different things. Most of my writing is for column writing. So it's around 800 to 1200 words, is usually what I write. And so for that, I generally just sit down and I start writing. And it's almost like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I start to write and it starts to come together, and I just keep. You know, editing and cutting and moving things out of that document in, into another document that I don't want, and you know, putting notes in it and just sort of working it through. And it's it always feels sort of magical in the end, yeah. Because you know, I'll sit down and however many hours later, however many hours that took me, you know, I'll have something that didn't exist before, and it just always feels like, wow, that's. Where did that come from? And even sometimes when I'm writing and it's just not coming together. And then that moment when it just all kind of clicks into place. It's
1: such a good feeling. I'm, I was yeah. going to ask you about that. In fact, because I love the analogy of it being a puzzle. It feels like that to me too. And you're, you're really engaged as you're trying to solve the puzzle. But do you ever reach a point where you feel like you just can't solve the puzzle and you don't know what to do and you feel completely stuck? What do you do if you get to that point? Well, since I have a deadline,
0: <laughs> the puzzle's going to fit somehow. So I'm lucky that I, you know, have a, my fiance as a writer. So I have somebody that I can go to. And I, the thing that I always get stuck on is the kicker. So that final line in a column that has to kind of wrap it up and tie it all yes. together and be the last thing that people read. Cause it can't just like, end, sure. right? it has to have a kind of, and that's the thing I always have the hardest time with. I would say 90% of the time it doesn't come to me right away, and so if I have time to sit on it, I'll sit on it, and it'll usually come to me by the next morning if if I have enough time to sleep on it. If I don't have enough time to sleep on it, Robert usually will come up with something, and then worst case scenario, my editor will come up with something, but that's, the part that I struggle with the most, I can make everything else work. Yeah, It's just a question of, is it going to be, you know, at its absolute best. And sometimes it is sometimes, you know, some of my columns that I wrote the fastest are some of the ones that resonated the most with people. So, you know, it just sort of depends, but it it usually in the end it comes together and I kind of marvel at it Mm. and I'm like, Oh, you know, that was, that's kind of amazing because I didn't really have a clear idea of what I was going to write before I wrote it. I had a cor- sort of, I mean, I had a high level idea, yeah. right? like yeah. but I didn't know exactly how it was going to come out in the end. Yeah.
1: I resonate with that too. There's something about the writing process that helps us to nail down exactly what we think about it yeah. in a way that sometimes when you see the words on the page, you go, Oh my gosh, wow. That's really true. I didn't even know that that's how I felt about that or that's what I thought about it. But, but then there it is.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. I also do feel like, I mean, in a kind of like Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, big sure. magic kind of way that like, it's sort of out there and it's like coming to you. Yeah. And that's what it feels like to me. You know, where you're just sort of like, you just have to sort of open yourself up or the war of art, you know, which is another book that's just you like every person who wants to write or does <laughs> every write human person. That book. I mean, it's just. A, I mean, such yeah. an incredible, profound book. But you know, just this—the process of sort of opening yourself up to that and saying, "Like, I'm kind of, mm. I'm here, I'm ready. Like, let's do this." You know.
1: Yeah, I, I want to talk about the War of Art because you mentioned it, because I've talked about it here on the show before, and it's such an important. It really is such an important book that every human being, I believe needs to read whoever wants to do anything creative in their life. And by that, I mean, even create a change in your life. You've got to read this book. But before we go there, I'm curious, do you know the difference when you submit a piece of work? Do you know if you're like, this is really good. And this kind of came from a place beyond me versus this is good. I made this work, but it's not. Do you have that kind of objectivity about your work?
0: Hmm, that's a good question. I think right when I have finished it, I don't because I've often been sitting in the same place for eight hours. <laughs> and I can't even think, you know, I can't yeah. even see the words on the page anymore. And I'll, so usually what I'll do is I'll send it to Robert and then he'll give me feedback on it. And often I'm just like, this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And then he'll say, well, this is really good. And this is really whatever. And they'll be like, I guess, I don't know. You know, and then like <laughs> the, the next day, maybe when I can read it with fresher eyes, I can tell. For the most part, if I've really been working on it, I, I can't see it clearly until I can get a little bit of distance. Yeah. That's the same is true for me too.
1: Okay, let's talk about The War of Art. You have told me before, and you just mentioned here, what an important role this has played in your writing life. Mm -hmm. Can you give our readers or our listeners a little sense of what the book is, what it's like, and why it's mattered so much to you?
0: Yeah. And so to talk about that, I'll talk about the other kind of writing that I've done, which is writing a book, which is very different than writing a column. And that's where The War of Art was really critical for me, because that was such a huge undertaking. And so with the columns, I don't outline, I don't really know what I'm going to do with the book, I did spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what the chapters are going to be and what's going to be in the chapters. And I actually used Scrivener. Have you ever used that? Yeah, I love Scrivener. Yeah, so I used that, you know, Don Miller had recommended it, I think. And so I would just have, I had kind of, Mm -hmm. layout of the book. And then when I had something, I would kind of drop it in wherever it was supposed to go and I would move things around, but I had the basic kind of outline. I mean, there were some chapters, ended up being some chapters that weren't in the outline, but it did give me a roadmap. And for the next book, the book that I'm about to start, I will definitely have an outline.
1: I think you have to with the book, because to take your analogy a step further, a piece of writing being like a puzzle a column is, or an article that's a thousand words is maybe a a 500 piece puzzle. And then a book is like a 500,000 piece puzzle. So you can't see the whole picture all at once. And it's helpful to have little sections. I think having written a few books and helped other people write books, one of the most helpful things I think is to kind of be able to wrap your brain around a section at a time and trust that you're only working on that section right then. And you don't need to to like hold in your brain what's happening in a totally different section of the puzzle. But,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, there was an added, an added hurdle for me because I was so used to writing at around 800 words. Sure. So I, so I now can kind of, I know exactly when to kind of transition to the next part of the column and yeah. it's just like, it's a rhythm. I don't even have to think about it. So I started when I was writing for the book, I started just writing, it was a bunch of 800 word mm, yeah. piece columns, like strung together, right? Like, so sort of learning how to re- write in a, in a longer way was something that was harder for me at first. Yeah. So, so the war of art was really helpful to me, because when I was writing, the book is when I felt the most resistance. And so in the war of art, that's really, I mean, that's the whole game, basically, the idea that there is this resistance that we all face. And like you said, it's not just with writing. It could be starting a business. It could be starting a workout routine. It could be really anything worthwhile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when you're, that you will, you will meet this kind of resistance and the closer you get to doing the thing or finishing the thing, the resistance just gets stronger and stronger. And without the awareness of that, it can really do you in. Yeah because you can start to think I'm not supposed to be doing this because if I was supposed to be doing this, I wouldn't be feeling this way. (laughs) I wouldn't be feeling so anxious. I wouldn't be feeling so whatever, whatever form it takes for people. For me, it's anxiety. Some people get depressed, can't get out of bed, whatever it is, but where you just start to feel this is wrong. Like (laughs) this can't be right because it makes me feel so terrible. And so I actually, I mean, I've probably read that. I don't even know how many times I've read that book, but I, I have it on Audible. And when I was writing my book, I, whenever I wasn't writing, I was listening to that basically. And I just had it on loop and I just was always listening to it. And it was just keeping Mm -hmm. my mind in the right place, which is you just have to get in the chair and you just have to do it and you just have to push and push and push. And, and I've seen that in so many other things. I mean, even with my podcast getting to the point of actually launching it was so hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did all the interviews. I had all the interviews. I had all this content, but to actually do it, I just, and then I was like, Oh, this is resistance. I'm, I'm experiencing resistance and all the things that he describes it as all the self-doubts and all the, why are you doing this? Yeah. Who do you think you are? And all those things come up. And so it's also just a fun book, especially, I don't know if you've ever listened to it on Audible, but the reading of it is just brilliant. I haven't, but now Um, I want to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's like funny. It like makes you laugh. And you'll just recognize all these things in yourself, right? I mean, like, how has it affected you? How has it impacted you? Well,
1: one thing that I was just thinking about a second ago that has been so helpful for me is he personifies the resistance in the book. So Resistance, capital R. And he talks about how there's this force that's outside of us called resistance. And it comes, you know, like we come up against it as we try to create a positive change in our life or as we try to do anything creative. And for me, depersonalizing the resistance was so important because before that I thought that all of the negativity and self-doubt and everything in my brain was was very personal. I think it's exactly what you're talking about, where you you make up the story in your head, well, that that this means I shouldn't be doing this thing because it's so hard. Or this means like I have these demons that are my demons that only I deal with. And by depersonalizing the resistance, it was like, oh, this is actually a completely expected part of the process. If I wasn't facing resistance, I should be confused. And then it also helped me to start to identify, I was going to ask you this, for me, as I started to think about the resistance as out there, as this force out there that would pop up in different ways, I started to notice that there were all these different ways that it came up for me, like, you know, procrastination would be one, or I would invent like imaginary problems, <laughs> like I would be like, mm-hmm. I would be like, Oh, my computer cord is at the office and my computer's yeah. dead. So I guess I can't upload the podcast. Well, I guess that's just, that's how that's going to go, you know? And, and it's like, get in your car and drive to the office that's five minutes away, and go get the cord. But yeah, you invent all these like invisible obstacles to help you explain to you why you're experiencing this the feeling of tension
0: yeah yeah well and i do it like with the cleaning <laughs> right like my house yeah. is like spotless and um but i did it even when i had to do my book proposal i hadn't i was like my i have to get my office like in perfect you know, shape. I need new curtains. I need a rug. I need. And so I literally would not start working on it until I had my office space. Like now, meanwhile, Robert, who who you have to have on your podcast, my fiance, he actually never experiences this, which is interesting. Interesting. He's one of the only writers I know who's like this, that I always joke to him that I'm always reading all these books so I could just become Robert (laughs) Because, because he just gets up every morning so my office, we're in a townhouse. My office is on the first floor. His office is on the fourth floor. But when I say his office, it's our it's our family room. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like where our TV is and the Peloton. And there's like a plastic, you know, like folding table that like he works on. And there's just piles of stuff everywhere. And he just has like a kitchen chair. And- Oh my gosh! And, and he just goes up there and writes. I mean, he writes long. You know, he's a magazine writer. He writes for the New York Times magazines, and he writes for New, for National Geographic. And he just wrote—I don't even know what number book—it's fifth book or something—and it's yeah. completely brilliant. It's coming out this summer, and he loves it. Loves it.
1: Like oh he just gosh. goes. Up he there needs to write a book on creativity. Yeah, he just goes the up there,
0: and the only time he isn't working is when he takes the dogs out. I don't even yeah. really think he eats lunch. <laughs> but yeah, procrastination is a really big one for me. And getting, like, there's all these things that have to be in place before I do it. And I just feel like it comes in around everything. I, and I've gotten so much better at... You know, just the the book is so great also because he just talks about he's such a great writer and he says so much success, but it really came later in life because he didn't understand resistance, right? Once he got mm-hmm. a handle on it. And so yes. learning how to like stop the self-talk also is, you know, really big for me, like to now see it happening and going, oh, no, 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 no. Like all this like negative self-talk is it's completely bonkers.
1: yeah. It's been so huge for me as a writer to realize to work with other writers who I really respect, and to realize they have the same loop playing in their head. Nobody's ever going to read this. Nobody, wa- nobody cares. You know, um, you're going to do all this work for nothing. What if you? What if the last thing you wrote, you know, was a fluke? You'll never do that again. Like yeah. all these things that we deal with, and it just has been so eye opening for me to be like, oh, this. Other person who I thought must be so evolved beyond that, they have the same loop playing in their head and they've just learned, you know, to quiet it for long enough to sit down and right. actually get the work done. Which is all any any writer ever learns. Yeah. Although now that you're talking about your fiance, I do need to have him on the show because it's the first time I've ever heard of anyone who doesn't have, yeah. have that loop playing.
0: Yeah. Well, no, no, I don't know about that. I think he may have the loop. I mean, he could tell you more. I just think he's very disciplined about shutting it down. Got it. Okay. I think but I do think he genuinely enjoys writing, which is something a lot of writers don't. It's true. It's true. Like really a lot true. of writers will be like, they like the final product, but they don't like yes. the process. I actually do like the process once I get into the flow. I just have to get myself in the flow. Um, Have you ever read The Untethered Soul? I have, yes. Yes. Yeah, because that's another one that was very helpful in terms of just understanding how completely and utterly psychotic your inner voice is and how you should never listen to it. And (laughs) if you knew anybody who spoke that way, you would get as far away from them as possible.
1: You would, yeah. Like you crazy lunatic. (laughs)
0: exactly so like stop letting it run your life with all its crazy talk and also all of the um and i you know uh, the predictions right yeah. of all the things that are definitely going to happen and all the things that people are saying about you and all the things that people are thinking about you that are never true mm right? And that you find you're just like have a 100% failure rate and predicting anything. And yet you keep going back to this. It's just like, once I was able to sort of personify it that way, I was like, yeah, I would never be friends with somebody. Never, never. I would never have a therapist who talked to me this way. I'd be like, you're nuts. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you really you do have to kick the voice out of your life in order to get any kind of productive work done. If you when you start to think about it that way, you realize like, but this is just a necessity. I've got to get rid of this voice that's telling me that I'm. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll never. And get I do think that's better, why
0: so. I've been lucky, you know, of having deadlines, right? So that's without sure. deadlines, I actually don't know what would happen because I think that by having that action forcing event, it makes me just have to shut that down mm-hmm. and just say, like, I just I'm going to do this and whatever. Happens whatever comes out, like it's going to be my best effort, and that's all I can do. I love it. So maybe for people who don't have deadlines, to somehow create their own deadlines. Yes, I think that's huge. You're working on a new book. Can you tell yeah, us? Yeah, I am. Well, I have a contract to write a new book. I have to start. I have to start working on it during this <laughs> during
1: this lovely time that we all have. Yeah, like so much. Yeah, you know, so many extra yeah. hours on our hands. Do you know? Can you tell us what the book is about?
0: Yeah, it's a. Book about grace. It's kind of it'll it will be somewhat memoirish, I guess, in the sense that it's my story of really becoming, well, sort of some of the stuff we were talking about. Even looking back over some of my work, for example, that I think is not super graceful. Like that book I wrote mm-hmm. is not super graceful and not really consistent with what I would say my values are, which you know has always been you know, aligned spiritually with, with Jesus, whatever you want to call that. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not super religious anymore, but I do really identify with the, with the teachings of, of Jesus and, and grace and forgiveness and Mm. humility and all these things that I sometimes was, showing and other times I wasn't and I think it got much worse after Trump got elected (laughs) and I really kind of spiraled in terms of just being really angry and judgmental and and I wasn't always expressing it you know but I was definitely feeling it and then sometimes I was expressing it and so it all kind of came to a head and I just realized like this is not how I want to live and I've got to figure out how to integrate grace into my life publicly and privately and everybody i know seems to need help with it as well yeah so and it's not like if if donald trump doesn't get elected again that this is going away so, sure sure like the division the division that we have in our country is not that's not going away anytime soon so yeah. so some of it will be my experience and some of it will be social psychology around you know you know, grace is actually good for you. It's actually healthy for you. It's how Mm -hmm. you can practically apply this. And yeah, so that's the idea. And I'm actually really excited about writing it. I'm just trying to create space right now to, I'm not sure. Am I creating space or am I procrastinating? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) yeah, so it's like, I probably don't need to get everything on my to-do list done before I start writing, but um, I've kind of given myself till Monday. Um, and then I'm going to start, yeah, I'm going to start writing. So, and I'm excited about it. It's a topic that I really like.
1: I'm excited to read it. I can't wait to read more. Um, I need to let you go and wrap up here, but I want to ask you one final wrap up question before we finish, which is, this is the question I always ask at the end of these interviews and really has to do with what we talk about all the time on this show, which is that words are one of the most powerful ways that we can shape our personal lives and Our communities and the wider world. And I'm curious for you, how you hope your words will shape the wider world.
0: I hope that my words will help inform people and will help people sometimes think differently about things. And I hope that they will be something that's, you know, is more shedding light than heat on the situation, which I think in the past I probably mm-hmm. often it was the reverse, or maybe I was doing light and heat together, but there was a little too much heat, I think, and so I, I just I hope that my I hope that I can be more graceful with my words and that the, and that they mm-hmm. will land in that way with people, but at the same time, I don't think being graceful means being passive. Or, you know, I, I still think it's really important to speak up uh, about important issues. So someone might say to me, like, well, if you, you know, talk about racism or say that someone's behaving racist, in a racist manner or whatever, you're not being graceful. I, I reject that. That's not true. I think that you, you speak up about important issues and you're uncompromising about that, but you can do it in a mm-hmm. way I think that's, that's graceful. And so that that's kind of my goal. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, part of this book is me figuring this out. Right. Yeah. And I've been on this journey for a little while. So it's there's some of this already happened. And so I have seen how I've been able to sort of integrate some of this thinking into my life and to to be more graceful. But but I'm not there yet. I'm not where I want to be.
1: It's really beautiful. Kirsten, thank you so much. We're so grateful for your voice in the world. I know I, for one, am constantly inspired by the work that you're doing and really grateful to have you as a friend and so grateful that you got to share your wisdom and insight with our audience today. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.